Well, just to start this off on a major downer, I, uh, I woke up this morning um, about 4.30, couldn't sleep, and just depressed, discouraged. <laughs> uh, why is that funny? <laughs> is it a great way to start a Sunday sermon? And I just, but I was laying there, and I just was repeating to myself, Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and I just longed to be here this morning, and to, and to be with you all, and to, and to sing, and to, and to worship God together, and to, and to look at his word together, and um, all I have to say, it's just, it's a joy, it's a delight to be here, and to look at God's word together with you. If we... Um, I was looking for an opening illustration for this sermon. I couldn't find one. That's why I came up with, I'm depressed at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> but um, I was trying to think of, of, of this theme of, of finding yourself. And, and I was trying to think of, of literature and, and, and movies that, that discuss finding yourself. And if you type in movies to find yourself, you have lists and lists and lists. There's IMBD lists. There's Wikipedia lists. There's just movie and movie and movie after that are along the theme of finding yourself, because it's one of the predominant themes of, of the culture that we live in, that one of the pursuits in life, and, and I don't disparage it, is to find yourself. And on some of these lists, for example, there's just different ways in which people find themselves. One movie on this list is Two Night Stand, which you can imply from the title of the movie what it's about. It's about finding yourself through sexual expression, finding yourself in other people finding you to be sexually gratifying. Or, in a more lighthearted way, there's The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, right? A great movie. A great movie where he lives a pretty uninteresting life, and he decides to travel around the world in search of this famous photographer. And in the doing, he finds himself. So he's finding himself through adventure. Or probably the quintessential example is Into the Wild, right? Where uh, the, the character Christopher, he, he, he finds himself by sort of eschewing all cultural uh, mores and, and expectations and so on, and he hitchhikes across the country, and he's hitchhiking to Alaska, and there's that famous line in the movie where he says, I think that careers are an invention of the 20th century, and I don't want one. <laughs> yeah, okay. So today, we, we come to a place where, where Jesus is very practical for us. And he's very practical because he addresses this very question and issue that we all face. Namely, how do we find ourselves? And we're going to see that the way that Jesus provides for us is not like the 21st century way of finding yourself. Of carving your own path. But we'll also look briefly and see that it isn't maybe an ancient way either, maybe an ancient Eastern way of finding yourself, but rather what Jesus gives to us is something that's radically different from each and every other approach to finding oneself. And we'll see that there's something remarkable in the person of Jesus himself because Jesus never calls us down a path that he hasn't first journeyed himself. So we'll unpack the sermon into three points today. The path of Jesus, the path of the disciples, and the power to find it. The path of Jesus, 
the path of the disciples and the power to find it. So if you have a Bible, it will be in Matthew chapter 16, starting about verse 21. And there's a pew Bible that's available for you if you'd like it. And today's sermon text is on page 822. And if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, then this, this, this pew Bible in front of you is our gift to you. So I'll read to us the text, and then we'll pray, and we'll, we'll, we'll look at it together. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is God's word for us this morning. Let us pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word here. We do pray, God, that your spirit would come and would illuminate this text to us and that we would see Jesus Christ and the great treasure that he is for us. We ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. So point one, the path of Jesus. To just sort of recap from last week and and bring us up to speed here by way of context, let's remember the scene of where we're at. Okay, last week we looked at verses 13 through 20, and our passage here from 21 to the end is the same scene. Okay, it's it's just the next moment to moment that's occurred here. And in the text previous, in verse 13, it says that the disciples are in Caesarea Philippi. And that's a unique place for Jesus to take his disciples, okay? He's, most of his ministry with his disciples has occurred along the Sea of Galilee, And now he's journeyed north about 20 miles to Caesarea Philippi, a town that's named after Caesar, Caesarea, and it's named after Herod Herod Philip, which you get Caesarea Philippi. And it's a very um, metropolitan kind of area. It's a very diverse area religiously. There's a lot of uh, uh, different religions there. There's a lot of different gods there. In fact, it's it's a lot like a major city today. It's It's a cultural center of sorts. And it's in this context and in this place where there's a lot of different religions, a lot of different options, that Jesus says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? So he's asking them in this very kind of urban, sort of diverse, multicultural setting, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, and he says, you are the Christ the son of the living God. That's up in verse 16. And this is what's known and what we looked at last week. It's known as the great confession. Peter is the first follower of Jesus that that truly gets who Jesus is. 
And, he, and he's the first to say, in these first 16 chapters of Matthew's gospel, Peter's the first one to actually say, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the coming king, you are the son of the living God. And, and Jesus declares to Peter that he's blessed because of this. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Jonah, Bar just means son. Blessed are you, si- uh, Jonah's son. Because, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but, but God has revealed this to you. He says, it's an, it's, an, it's an incredible blessing to realize that God has revealed something to this man. Jesus is marveling that his father has revealed something to this man, Peter, and given him the knowledge of who Jesus Christ really is. But, just a couple seconds later, in just a couple of verses in our text this morning, Jesus will go on to say something to Peter that is among the harshest things that he has ever said to anyone. So in, in one turn, he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. And then down in verse 23, he will say, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Holy smokes. It's, it, it's, almost, like, it's almost like Jesus appears to be like schizophrenic or something. To us here. And on the one hand, he can be just declaring that this is God who's done this. Blessed are you, happy are you. And then just a couple moments later, in the same conversation, can say, You're satanic, get away from me. You're a hindrance to me. This is the Peter that he just said he's going to build his church upon. And now he tells him that he's a hindrance to him. Now, what's even more striking and, and probably even embarrassing is to understand the implications of verse 24. Because verse 24 says, then he told his disciples. The implication being, they were all there. They were all there when, he received, when Peter receives this kind of massive rebuke. Now, I mean, even common courtesy would tell us that if you're going to dress someone down, if you, if you really need to lay into someone and tell them how it is, you pull them aside, right? You don't just stand in front of everybody. You don't just stand in front of his closest friends and say, you're satanic. Unless, unless the rebuke is needed to be so serious because the mistake is so serious. It would only make sense for Jesus to give such a serious rebuke here if the mistake that Peter is making is in fact that grievous and grave. So what is the mistake, you ask? Funny you asked, I shall show you. When Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the son You are the son. Every Jew in the first century would know what that meant. I want just, by by way of of, of making this point, I want you to know something about about this this book here. And and that is that there, there aren't two separate stories in the Old and New Testament. In fact, the Old Testament, you could say, is God's promise to save his people, and the New Testament are those promises realized. Or another way to put it, is that the purpose of the New Testament is to explain and fulfill 
the Old Testament. I did just I did a, just a cursory search and found that the New Testament quotes the Old Testament 855 times. So the New, the New Testament authors that are, that are writing these letters to the churches, they quote the Old Testament at least 855 times. And there's only 7,900 verses in the New Testament. So well over 10% of the New Testament is just plain quotations from the Old. The purpose of the New Testament is to explain and to show that the promises of God are being fulfilled in the man and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So what's the point? The point is, as I said a moment ago, that every Jew would know that the Old Testament has promised that a son would come. And this son has taken different forms. In, in Daniel chapter 7, it says, that I, as we read in our scripture reading today, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him, and that his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And Peter is saying, Jesus, you are this son of man that the prophet Daniel prophesied about. And there's another son. There's the son that's mentioned in Psalm 2. He's the son who will rule the nations with a scepter of iron. He says in Psalm 2, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. You are my son today, I have begotten you. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces. Therefore, O kings, be wise. O rulers, be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. This figure who's coming to right every wrong, this figure who's coming to defeat death and evil itself is pictured to be a son. He's the son of man and he's the son of God and Peter gets it. He's the first one to truly actually get it. The one who will set the world to the way that it should be. The one who will hold justice in his hands. Authority and power belong to him. He's the son. He's the rightful son. He's the true son. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that you get this. God has shown you who I truly and actually am. But just as soon as Jesus confirms that Peter gets it, the who of who Jesus is, the son of man, he gives us the how in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. What? The, ancient, the, the, the son of man who will come in, in glory and power and dominion who will right every wrong. The, the, the son in Psalm 2 who will, will rule the nations with an iron scepter. This son of man is going to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and priests and be killed? Jesus is saying, I'm going to be weak. I'm going to be humbled. I'm going to be scorned. I'm going to die. Because there's another figure in the Old Testament. And that's the suffering servant. 
And the suffering servant comes to us in Isaiah 42. And one whom God delights. But no one, no one, no one, no one had ever thought that the son would be the suffering servant. No one, that is, of course, except the father. How could the divine son in all his beauty and power be the suffering servant of whom it says he had no beauty that we should admire him? That's what it says of the suffering servant, that he has no beauty that we should admire him. And then we know that the Son of Man is dazzling in beauty and glory. How can those two meet up? The Father knows it, though. As he says at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son, the divine Son, in whom I am well pleased, the suffering servant. So here's what Jesus is saying. Let me just put it on the bottom shelf. Jesus is saying, this is how the kingdom of God will come in and through me, through weakness, through suffering, and death. This is how the kingdom of God will come in me and through me, through weakness, through suffering, and death. Now, do we understand a bit why Jesus says to Peter to get behind him, Satan? In the NAS version, it says that you are a stumbling block to me. And, 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 the, and the Greek word behind that is, is skandalon, which can be also translated temptation. Get behind me, you are a temptation to me. What's the temptation? He's saying here, what Jesus is saying to Peter here, is the same thing that he said to Satan in the desert. What Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, you are a temptation to me, is the same thing that he said to Satan when he was being tempted in the desert. Because the temptation of the evil one, of the accuser, of Satan, was to say, do you want the kingdoms of the earth? Then bow down and worship me. The temptation was, the Father's way is through weakness and suffering. The Father's way is through weakness and suffering. This is after the divine announcement in Matthew 13, 17, where the Father has declared Jesus to be the Son and the suffering servant. And then Satan knows that. He knows that he's been told that the way he will bring the kingdom is through weakness and suffering. And the temptation is... Do it through power. Don't do it the way of weakness. You know who you are, Jesus. You can call legions of angels down now to your rescue, so do it. And that's the same thing that Peter is tempting him to do that he can be victorious through power and through strength. But the Father's way is that he will be victorious through weakness, suffering, and death. Peter's problem and our problem, this is not, we have to put the bullseye on ourselves here. He can't get into his mind. He can't get suffering into his ideas of greatness and happiness. He can't wrap his mind around how suffering can also be commingled with ideas of greatness and happiness. Jesus tells him, you're not thinking like God in verse 23. He says, you're thinking like men. Jesus is saying there's a way that the natural mind cannot conceive of true greatness. Verse 20 says that he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. (laughs) Why would he do that? He warned, he, he strictly charges his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Isn't at the end of the gospel he gonna tell them to all go out to the ends of the earth? To teach who he is and to proclaim who he is and to make disciples in his name. 
But here, 12 chapters before, he strictly charges them, don't tell anyone that I'm the messianic king. Why? Because they don't see. They don't see that greatness, that his kingdom will come in and through his suffering, weakness, and death. And until they understand that, they're just bad witnesses. Look, Jesus Christ, my friends, didn't go to the cross so that we wouldn't have a cross. Jesus Christ went to the cross so that our crosses wouldn't crush us. Jesus Christ didn't go to the cross so that we wouldn't have crosses. He went to the cross so that our crosses would be discipleship to us. And until we get that, Jesus tells Peter and the disciples to not even tell anyone who he is. Look closely for a moment at Peter's conception of Jesus when he says, Far be it from you, Lord. Verse 22, and, and Peter took Jesus aside, so I guess, I guess Peter has the courtesy to bring Jesus aside. And it says, far be it from you, Lord. Well, quite literally, in, in, the, in the original, it, it says, mercy is yours, or, or, or grace is yours. When Jesus tells them that he's going to suffer at the hands of men and die, the first reaction of Peter is to pull him aside and say, mercy's yours. In other words, God doesn't let bad things happen to good people. Do you see what Peter's saying? He's saying that Jesus, uh, God is with you, therefore you can't suffer, you won't suffer. And, 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 and so many of us, we have this conception of, of following Jesus, that once we follow him, our, our wives won't have miscarriages anymore, and, and our finances won't be tight, and the kids will all be great, and the marriage will be smooth sailing, and so on and so on. And Jesus is saying that until you understand that the kingdom of God comes through the weaknesses in your life, you're not worthy to even be my disciple, to tell people who I am. One preacher said that Peter is giving us the essence of Christian immaturity, which essentially says that Jesus went to the cross so I won't have to. Or that Jesus died so I won't experience difficult things. But Jesus shows us here. The path of Jesus, to, to conclude this point. The path of Jesus is that he will be the divine son. He will conquer and he will be victorious. And he will do so as a suffering servant. He will do so through weakness and death and suffering. So that's the path of Jesus. And now the path of his disciples which we are included in. Verse 24 and 25 says, Then he told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake in the gospel will find it. So now we're starting to get into a definition here about how we actually find ourselves. Um, I was... I'm excited about a, a, a movie that's just come out. I haven't seen it yet, um, but it's called A Star is Born. I don't know if you've seen some of the trailers. It's getting really great reviews and so on. Um, and it, it stars Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. Uh, Stephanie's actually her name. 
I don't know why I did that. Um, but there's this interview that, that, I, that, that I watched over the weekend um, where Lady Gaga's being interviewed and the film's being talked up and, and so on. And she makes this comment about uh, how she's kind of in real life kind of juxtaposed to the character that she plays in the film. Because the character she plays in the film is someone who's in her, a lady who's in her 30s and she's very, very shy and bashful and doesn't think that she uh, has a voice and, and doesn't have anything to say and so on. And, and, and through her, the other character, Bradley Cooper, she, she finds that and becomes a star, a star is born. And, and Lady Gaga says, though in real life, that's not me at all. In fact, she says, if I didn't have the, the, the platform that I do to get my songs out there and have my voice, I don't know who I would be. I don't know who I would be. And the, and the, and the, and the, and the audience sort of goes, oh. But <laughs> that answer smacks of such arrogance. Because there's, what, maybe three people in the entire world that are afforded the platform to get their voice and their message out to so many people. So the rest of us are just kind of just left with not being able to actually find and be our true selves. That's what she's saying. Or remember the, uh, the movie Ants? You remember the opening scene of Ants? Anybody seen Ants? Okay, you can, you can admit it. The opening scene is where the, the main character is sort of, he's with his, with his shrink, and he just says, I just, I'm just, I just feel so insignificant. And the response of the shrink was, well, good, because you are. <laughs> and it sort, of, it sort of pans out, and you, and you see that, the, that he's in this ant colony with just millions and millions of other ants, right? And the whole movie is about how he, you know, they're all kind of marching in order, and he's trying to do his own thing by the beat of his own drum, and, and so on and so forth. He's... He is insignificant, but he's trying to make a name for himself in this, in this ant colony. And I say that to suggest to us that there are a variety of ways, but there are two primary ways in which we seek to find our true selves. And I just basically illustrated kind of the modern Western way that we do that. That the, that the way that you, you actually find yourself is by, is by carving your own path. Is by following your feelings and emotions and, and, and being everything that you want to be, right? But we would be remiss to not at least acknowledge that there's somewhat of a chronological snobbery that exists there. There's somewhat of an ethnocentric kind of arrogance there because that's not how the rest of the world conceives of finding yourself. Most of the rest of the world, the way that you actually find yourself in, 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 in the community and so on is by, is by just by losing yourself. It's by, is by just kind of getting along like the, like the ants do. It's by, it's by serving your family and, and, by, and by sticking around and, and never leaving home and, and doing your duty and doing what's right. And, and that's, that's, that's that culture's message to human flourishing. And it's, it's very different than ours. Right, Ours, our message of human flourishing is to, is, to, is, to, is to find your own way, to be who you really are. You do you. And I just want to suggest to us that there's a variety of ways in the world and there's a variety of ways in the, in the history of cultures and so on. And we would be arrogant to assume that the way in which we do it in 21st century modern Western America is the way that is the, is the right way to find one's self. Because what Jesus says here is he doesn't say that it's the modern 21st century Western way of finding yourself, carving your own path. And he doesn't say that it's the old way of just losing yourself. 
He says that you will find yourself by losing yourself. It's this radical, paradoxical, upside-down, seemingly incongruent message. That the way that you actually will find yourself is you will find yourself by losing yourself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a 20th century German pastor, on this verse said that when Jesus calls a man, he bids him to come and die. That when Jesus Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. What does that mean? As we said, Jesus doesn't just say, lose yourself. Because he says, I do want you to find yourself, the real you. He who loses himself for my sake will find it. There is a real self, there is a real you that Jesus is, is, is seeking for you to find. But the kicker is, is he refuses to say that you can find it directly. He says, in fact, that you must find it indirectly. The way in which you actually find yourself is by finding yourself indirectly. And we know this to be true, this sort of upside-down principle, this sort of uh, winning by losing that, that the cross precedes the crown. We, we, we know that intuitively in, in, in a couple of ways, right? We, we know that when we look at a, at a 50-year marriage, okay, where... Husband and wife truly love each other, and there's joy, and there's happiness among them. We know that that only came by self-sacrifice. We, we, we know that, that he loved her sacrificially for 50 years. That he, he gave things up for her. He preferred her instead of himself. And we know that, 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 that she loved him and, and, and served him in, in selfless and sacrificial ways. And that her service to him made him to be the man that he actually is. The reason that he's a loving, kind, gentle, older man is because he's just been poured out in love by this woman for 50, 60 years. That greatness came indirectly. Not by seeking it first. And we know it's true with our children, right? If we want to see our children flourish and succeed and be, and be intellectually and spiritually and emotionally well-adjusted, and then we, we know that the only way to do that is to deny ourselves and give ourselves to them. To, to, to read to them when, we, when we've, we've read Goodnight Moon 50,000 times and, you know, and, and to, to read it again. And, and, and you know, you, you've had a long day and you, you, you've put them to bed and, you don't want to go back in and, and kiss them and snuggle again. You just want to sit on the couch and just kind of talk to your wife or zone around and have an adult conversation or watch something or something. But you do it. Because you know that denying yourself is for their sake and their good. But Jesus doesn't just say, deny yourself. He doesn't say that, the, that, the, that, that that's starting to sound again like kind of the, the Eastern or ancient way of just, just deny yourself. Just deny yourself. And, and everything's going to be okay. He says, deny yourself and follow me. He says, deny yourself for my sake. Deny yourself for me. Not just deny yourself, period. Deny yourself for me and follow me. Because some of us do that, the other version. We just lose ourselves and we immerse ourselves into family or we immerse ourselves into business or we immerse ourselves into different causes 
that excite us, whether it's volunteer work or, or, or you know, working with, with, with abusive, abused groups or, or homeless groups or something. We just immerse ourselves in it and we deny ourselves because of it. And yet at the end, at the end it just comes up ashes anyway. It just comes up, it just comes up nothing anyway. Because self-denial just unto itself is not the path to truly finding yourself. Jesus says the path to truly finding yourself is to deny yourself and to follow him and look to him. How does that work? It looks like this. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Okay? <laughs> of all the, of, 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 of this sort of paradoxical formula that's been given us to here, right? Like, if you, if you lose yourself, then you will find it. If you seek to find yourself, you'll never find yourself. Uh, the, the one word that doesn't come on both sides of the formula is safe. Is safe. For he who would save his life will lose it. But who loses his life for my sake in the gospel will save it? No. Will find it. Will find it. He who seeks, excuse me, he who ceases from seeking to save will actually find it. So what does that mean? What does it, what does it mean to stop saving yourselves? Well, it means something like this. It means that all of us must have a deep self-identity. A deep self-identity. We must have a deep sense of, 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 of who we are and, and so on and so forth. So this desire to save ourselves is sort of eradicated. People that have a, a, a very confident, deep self-identity are not people that are constantly seeking to save themselves. There, there, there's, I mean, in the extreme example, maybe you know people that are really narcissistic and they, they don't ever think they do anything wrong. They have no desire within themselves to actually defend themselves, to save themselves, because they actually think they're always doing the right thing. But it comes from this sort of radical sense of self-identity where you no longer seek to save yourself. And Jesus is saying something very remarkable and intriguing to us here. He's saying that if you find your life in him, you no longer need to save it. If you find your hope, your identity, your security, your comfort, your strength, and find it in him, and find your radical self-identity in what the cross of Jesus Christ and what he says about you, then you no longer possess this constant aching and need to save yourself. Now, my friends, I, I speak as a man who is, 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 is about an inch down this path. It is, it is incredibly difficult to constantly remind yourself of your identity in Jesus Christ, that what he says about you matters more than what the world says about you, matters more what anybody and anything says about you. But when you find it, it's sort of like finding it for a glimpse. It's like you can hold on to it for a moment, and then as soon as you think about it too much, it's almost like it's gone. There's a place, though, where Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says of himself, he says, I do not even judge myself. He says that he, as one author has called it, one pastor and author has called it, Paul has begun to master the art of self-forgetfulness. That he doesn't even judge himself. That what Jesus has said about him and done for him and finding his life in him is the most significant thing about him. That 
He's come to terms with how screwed up he really is. He's come to terms with the inner turmoil that's within himself. But he has this radical deep self-identity that just kind of takes him off of the spectrum of introspection. He's got this radical self-identity that just absolutely takes him off of the spectrum of constantly looking to see if he measures up. Like we, we, we do this in other ways, right? We say things like, it doesn't matter what other people think, it only matters what I think. Yeah, right, okay. <laughs> They're just, we do that kind of stuff all the time. And we, 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 we just bounce between, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer going to be concerned with what other people think about me, I'm just going to be concerned with what I think about me. Well, that would be bad advice for someone like me, because I don't often think a lot of great thoughts about myself. I don't want to be kind of stuck in this brain of, of just thinking what I think about myself. So it's not what others think about you, it's not even what you think about you. It's what he thinks about you. And then, I'll, I'll, I'll move to a close here in point three. If you're new to my preaching, I preach like a funnel. The first point is really long, the second point is shorter. Than, yeah, so it's, yeah, anyway. You see what kind of freedom that gives you, though? It gives you the freedom to actually get your life back. Because without that, we're constantly using things and people and achievements to kind of give us that life. To give us that life that we, we, we know and, and want and need. And we're constantly trying to save ourselves. And we do it in ways that we, you know, that we're embarrassed to say. We do it with our, we don't always do it with bad things, by the way. We do it oftentimes, we find our lives in ways, we save ourselves in oftentimes very good things. We try to save ourselves through our kids. That we have a put-together family. Or through our marriages, that we have a a put-together marriage. Or through our business success, that we have a put-together, you know, financial position. Or through our reputation, we have a put-together reputation. And through all of those means, we're seeking to save ourselves. We're seeking to actually find our life in those things. But you see, what we're doing is that we're, 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 we're subtly just using and abusing everything and everyone. My children weren't intended to, 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 for me to find my ultimate identity in life. I've, I've bestowed upon them something that they weren't intended to, to, to bear for me as their father. Or, or success as a, as a pastor or a preacher. I, I, you know, the, the, this, this church wasn't intended to sort of somehow boost my ego and help me find my identity so that I could like, save myself through it. But when you find your life and your identity in Jesus and the gospel, it takes you off that spectrum. You actually get your life back and you can actually begin to love and serve people for just who they are. Not for yourself, not for what it does for you, but simply for the good of who they are as God's gifts to you. And the only way that we get here, the only way that this happens is through the weakness of losing things through the troubles of life. If the kingdom of God ultimately comes to us by the Son of Man becoming the suffering servant, that the kingdom comes in and through him by his weakness and suffering, then the same is true in your life. That the kingdom does come to you This life that he promises and offers to you comes through the weakness of losing things through the troubles of life. That that, 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 that the grand design 
of things. That the, that, the, that, the, that the master author, the one who's sovereign over us as we sang this morning, is using even the weak and sufferings of your life to help you actually find your life. To stop trying to save yourself in and through those things. But instead, to find your life in and through him. And it's always through suffering. On this side of the veil, it's how he does it. It's how he helps us to find our lives. If it's true ultimately with him, then it must be true with us. Which leads us to point three. Then how in the world do we have the power to do it? Well, first... The first thing that we must remember is that there is always a resurrection. There is always a resurrection. There is always hope. There is always a coming restoration. Even in this verse, verse 21, you know, the the awful things. From that time he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He doesn't just give us the doom and gloom. He always gives us the hope of restoration. He gives us the hope of resurrection. Even at the end of the passage in 27 and 28, it says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, that the Son of Man is coming in his kingdom. There is coming a resurrection in your life. It may not be. You may not fully see it on this side of the veil. God's always doing a million things in your life, okay? We would be remiss to somehow pinpoint why the suffering has happened. I lost this business because I did this. Well, that may be true, but there's also maybe a million other things that God's doing in your life. I know he is. I know it's true. Because Paul tells us that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. How could he say that? How could he say that our afflictions here are light and momentary? Because he must know something about the vastness and the greatness and the grandness of eternity. If this is light and momentary, it must mean that that is awesome and eternal. You are working in our waiting. You're sanctifying us. When beyond our understanding, you're teaching us to trust because your plans are still to prosper. You've not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You're faithful forever. You're perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. That's point reason one, that there's always a resurrection. Well, reason number two, and I'll close with this. Reason number two, that we can have power to have this kind of life, that we can have power to actually lose our life and save it and find it rather indirectly through him and see that the struggles and the trials and the battles are working for our good. The first reason is because there's a resurrection coming. And the second reason we find in verse 21, the very beginning of it. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. You know, in the original language there, that suffer many things can be translated suffer all things, suffer everything, suffer many things. That all of our failures, all of our shortcomings, all of our sin, all of our mistakes, all of our missteps, 
were paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. Which means that any time suffering, trial, tribulation comes into your life, it is never because God is punishing you. It is because God is lovingly caring for you as a loving, gracious father. He is not bringing about retribution in your life. Because all the punishment for your sin was suffered on the cross by Jesus Christ. He suffered many things. He suffered everything. He suffered all things. And if he suffered all things, then, 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 then your, the wages of your sin can't be doubly paid for by you. They're already paid for by him. So the things in your life are his loving, kind care to you. And third, from that time. From that time. That is a very um, distinct grammatical way to suggest something that's happened here in Matthew's gospel. This exact construction in the Greek occurs here, and it occurs in chapter 4, verse 17. That after Jesus' baptism and after he resisted the temptation, it says, from that time, he went out doing his ministry. And here in chapter 16, verse 21, from that time, is marking a distinct and radical change in his ministry. From now, Jesus' face is set to the cross. And I'll be honest, I gave you half of the story at the beginning of the sermon of me laying in bed thinking of Romans 8.1. What really helped me laying in bed this morning was thinking of the first couple verses, words here in Matthew 16.21, from that time. Because it means that my love is often weak. It means that my, my devotion to him is often not very faithful. That I don't remember the promises of God all the time, but he is perfectly and absolutely faithful. His face was set from that time on and nothing could persuade him or dissuade him from going to the cross. He is the man of sorrows. He is the suffering servant. He is the son of man. He is the rightful king of Israel. And he is perfectly determined in absolute in everything that he sets to do. Even when you're not. Even when you're unfaithful, he's faithful. Even when you seek to save yourself again, he's standing there waiting. And you can always fall into the loving arms of a faithful savior who will always absolutely be there, completely resolved and determined in purpose, even when you're not. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things for your sake. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would give me Jesus, give us Jesus, give us Jesus, give us Jesus. You can have all this world just give us Jesus, the faithful one, the faithful and the true. We ask God that you would help us now as we transition to the Lord's Supper where we celebrate what you've done for us in our place and on our behalf. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We do come now to celebrate the Lord's table together. Uh, This is a meal for Christians and this is something that the Christians have done since uh, Jesus instituted it in the upper room the night of his betrayal that the early church practiced, as we see in the book of uh, the letter of the first to the Corinthians. Uh, if you're a Christian and, and 
We, we, we describe that as you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and you've made that faith public through baptism, and you're joining us from another church, you're welcome to, 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 to partake with us. If that's not you and you're not a Christian, that's okay. I just encourage you to uh, just remain in, in your seat and just consider the words that were preached and consider what it would be to give your life to Jesus Christ. Uh, we're going to come up row by row from the back, take the elements back to your seat, and uh, one of the uh, elders will come up and lead us to partake corporately.